Well, welcome to our small catechism class. Um, Before we begin, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, today we transition from the Ten Commandments into the Creed. So from the first chief part into the second chief part, of how many chief parts, do you recall? Six. Six chief parts. If you know the six chief parts, you know the catechism. And so um, the first of those, the Ten Commandments, then the Creed, followed by that, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. And then the last three are the gifts that Christ gives, baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper. So as we transition, we do want to kind of pay attention in a really, it's an oversimplified way, but it still just kind of helps the mind grasp a hold of one of the key principles. And that is that the law has an SOS function. It shows us our sin. So shows our sin, SOS. And the creed answers that with its own SOS. It shows our Savior. So the nature of the creed is who God is and what he's done for us. Now, it's important for us to realize something that the catechism assumes and something that the scriptures assume, and that is that the commandments are given to the people of God. And you're going to see how this ties together. Um, let's, let's, if you have your Bible, open up to Exodus, and let's go to chapter 20. We want to see the commandments in biblical context, and then we want to see why the Catechism orders things the way it does. We want to reflect on what this means for us in terms of the shape of our lives as Christians. So once you're at Exodus 20, um, if you're in the ESV, English Standard Version, you'll see above the heading, the Ten Commandments. This Exodus 20 is where the commandments are given. Okay, now the first thing you're going to notice about Exodus 20, uh, right at verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Very interesting to get that context, isn't it? Because God is saying, I am the Lord your God, namely... I have claimed you as my own. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, where you belong to another. In fact, where you were slaves of another, and thus also out of the house of slavery. So, I am the Lord your God. I've chosen you, and I've set you free. You see that? Okay. Where did... did, um, Now, you can also see, uh, if you are on this page and you flip backwards, 
You can see at the heading of chapter 19 that Israel is out Mount Sinai. So this is the giving of the law. They're already out in the wilderness. And if you were to keep flipping back, you'd find at chapter 14, that's the crossing of the Red Sea. All right? So what is going on here? That God has already delivered his people from Egypt, from the house of slavery. He's already brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. Now, Paul in the New Testament likens this to a baptism. says that they were all baptized in the cloud and in the sea. So you've got God saving them, God baptizing them, and then God giving them the commandments. All predicated upon this. I am the Lord your God. I claim you as my own. I've rescued you and redeemed you. Now you shall have no other gods before me, etc. All right? So how does that reflect in the catechism, this reality? Well, if you open up to page 16, and again, we're kind of reviewing as we go, page 16 in your small catechism, And do remember that the catechism itself is quite short. It is, in fact, small, despite the book of 400 and some odd pages. Um, The catechism is, in this edition, roughly the first 40 pages. And what follows in the remainder is an explanation of the catechism. So here we are in the small catechism proper on page 16. And on page 16, we are now looking at the creed. And, um, of course, we're going to talk some about that picture on page 16. But what does it say right underneath the picture? It says, as the head of the family should teach it in a simple way to his household. So just, just like the commandments are given to God's people after God has saved them, after God has baptized them, the same thing is true here. So the assumption is that this is a Christian household, a baptized household, who, know God's, who knows God's salvation in Christ. And now, he's, now then he gives the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And as he introduces the creed then, after the Ten Commandments, it's a fuller revelation of who he is. And what do you see in the creed is we're going to see first article, second article, third article, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the graphic. So we were baptized into the Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what I want you to see is that all of this is, they're just really pieces of the same cloth. It's all one baptismal tapestry. Just as the people of old were saved and baptized and then given the commandments, so we are saved and baptized and given the commandments. And then, and then those commandments inevitably, of course, show us our sin, as we said at the beginning. But then comes along the creed and shows us our Savior. And that Savior, we find, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is triune, is baptismal. Okay? So that means that the whole shape of our lives is baptismal. The creed itself is baptismally shaped. In fact, that's really the origin of this creed. The, um, the pieces of the, um, the, the earliest pieces we have of the Apostles' Creed can be traced all the way back to the second century. Very old. And it's a baptismal creed. So you did two things when you were baptized um, in the ancient world. And, by the way, also today, we're going to be talking about this next week. Um, in fact, that's one of the themes of the Lenten texts for assigned for next week. But it is also uh, fitting because we're going to have a baptism next week. 
And you'll remember this part of the baptismal liturgy. Do you renounce Satan? Yes, I renounce him. Do you renounce all his works, all his ways, etc.? So there's a renunciation of Satan, and then there's a part that goes, do you believe? And then what is stated are the various, are the three articles of the creed. Okay? So there is a renunciation of Satan. I am not on that guy's team. And there is an affirmation of the creed of the Trinity. I am on that guy's team. <laughs> okay, so you see how that works. And the, again, what we're going to see in the preaching of Jesus next week is like, hey, whether you like it or not, friend, you're on one team or the other. There's no neutrality. There's no uh, spiritual Poland. Is that right? Switzerland. Switzerland. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Got the geopolitical specialist here. Switzerland. I know, the, I know the French. They're waving a white flag somewhere. <laughs> just, just teasing, just teasing. Okay, there is no neutrality in the spiritual battle or in the spiritual game, even though it's a deadly serious game. Um, you're on one side or the other whether or not you realize it. And in fact, kind of the way it works is if you think, no, no, I'm, I'm neutral, I'm riding the fence, I'm going to figure this out, you're already on the side of darkness. You're already deceived into thinking there is such a thing. Okay, so baptismally then, you are on one team or the other, and at your baptism you're renouncing the devil, not on that guy's team, and you're confessing the creed. I am on that guy's team. All right? So that's the origin of creeds. And then throughout the years, the Apostles' Creed gets built up into the form we have it now. It reaches its final form later then the Nicene Creed comes to us. That's the slightly lengthier creed. It reaches its final form in an earlier stage. All right, and then what we want to see here um, is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who God is, and what he does for us. If you look up at the picture on 16, these pictures are always worth a thousand words. Up at the top there, you've got a kind of funky-looking elephant, I think. Do you see it? You see the elephant with a small <laughs> trunk? You can see it, can't you? This is what happens when you teach confirmation a few too many times. Uh, no, it's a hand, of course. <laughs> it's a hand. The hand giving all things. And so this is, this is what we're going to talk about when we talk about God being the creator. He's the giver of all things. Okay? Up at the top. And then, of course, on, uh, on the left side, to us, you see a what? A lamb. Good. Okay, correct answer. <laughs> Didn't know what to expect. Sometimes I get a, sometimes the kids see a dog there, but it is, in fact, a lamb. It's just a little stylized. And uh, you've got the victory flag with the cross on it. Now, in Christian iconography, this is um, the, the lamb who was slain and yet is raised from the dead, thus the flag and the cross. Okay, so this is Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And then what do you have? You have uh, the dove. Yeah, what's, or the chicken, as the little kids sometimes say, but it is the dove. Now, where, where do we get the imagery of the dove from? The Holy Spirit descends Upon Jesus, like a dove, Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father says what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So there at the baptism of Jesus, you have the Trinity 
revealed. Um, In fact, you have the Trinity revealed in the very first parts of the Scriptures as well. If you'll just humor me, and your Bible is probably open or turned on to Acts chapter 20, let's just, for the fun of it, go back real quickly to Genesis 1, and I'll show you something that's kind of fun here. All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, okay, just kind of pay attention here. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, we have a distinction here, was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, etc. Okay, so what do you see? You see God and you see the Spirit. We might say you see the Father and you see the Spirit. Where do you see the Son? Any guess? Light is a creation, so you don't really see light here. And God said, right? So um, where do we get this from? Remember how John's Gospel begins? In the beginning was the Word. So now John locates, it's the same exact language that we see here in Genesis 1, in the beginning. John says, in the beginning was the Word. So, yeah, hidden there, and God said, this is the Word of God through which all creation came about. And so we see what then? God, Spirit, and Word, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So even from the first pages of the Scriptures, we see the Trinity, albeit in a in a veiled and hidden way, made more explicit later on. All right, so then if we keep our eyes on that, on that um, picture on page 16, now it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that mean we have three gods? No. No, one God. And how do you think uh, the artist here is trying to um, reveal to us the oneness or the unity of these three persons? What do you see in the picture on page 16? The triangle. Yeah, three sides but one triangle. Now, all analogies to the Trinity are going to break down, okay? But in a triangle, you have three things that are yet one. These three different angles, if you will, three different sides, however you want to think of it. What else do you see there that unites the three as one? What's surrounding each of them? A circle, and the circles are overlapping with one another. Um, showing a, a distinction between the persons and yet a unity, an overlap between all of them. Now, all these analogies break down, but what are we trying to say here? That in these three persons, we see one God. So, a tri-unity. Makes sense? A trinity. And so, that's what um, we're confessing here. Now, we see this tri-unity or trinity, as I mentioned, at the beginning of the Bible. We see it at the beginning of the New Testament with the baptism of Jesus. It comes up out of the waters. This is my beloved Son. Now, you've got Father and Son, and the Spirit descends upon him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, and then when Jesus commands that we be baptized, um, he says to his disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, how? In the names of... Wait, wait, yeah, name, name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three sharing one name, one essence or identity. So 
one God in three persons. All right? So that's what we see depicted. Hey, while we're on this quick field trip, put a finger here on page 16 so you don't lose your place and get frustrated. Um, turn to 387 in your catechism. This is, this is a lot of fun. I spent a whole hour with our confirmation kids, maybe last year, doing this. Um, but it turned to page 387. This is a fun thing. So on 387, you have an appendix, and it's called Symbols and Their Meanings. And this will help you uh, interpret some of the symbols you might see um, in our sanctuary on the stained glass windows all the way around, which, by the way, tell the story of Christ. If you go all the way around, there's a chronology and an ordering there. Um, but you'll see some of those symbols. And then you'll see these symbols also on the paraments. Those are the garments, the cloth coverings that find their, themselves on our altar and pulpit. And then also on the pastor's stole, marking him for ordination. Um, so you'll find these symbols. And then on the Christmas tree, remember all the beautiful ornaments in the white foam with the gold and sequins and they're so ornate. Those are called chrismons. Yeah. And um, those chrismons are often in the shape of various symbols. So this is a fun thing to look through and just note the rich symbolism and kind of acquaint yourself with this symbolism. And it'll help you, by the way, if you go visit other churches or if you find yourself you know, in a large city with a big fancy cathedral or something like that. Uh, you can become kind of symbol literate and you can understand what's being confessed by the buildings themselves. There's such a great richness. Remember when, um, remember when the, the people and the little children are cheering for Jesus as he walks in um, on, on the donkey uh, to Jerusalem? He says, do you hear what they're, you know, the, the Pharisees come and they're all angry. Do you hear what they're saying about you? Tell them to stop. Tell them to shut up. And he says, if I did, even the stones would cry out. It's kind of a beautiful poetry that in many churches all around the world, the true gospel and the word and sacraments are no longer preached there, but the very stones themselves still cry out. And if you have eyes to hear, so to speak, um, if you get this symbolism, then you can sit in a, in a large church where the the poor priest knows nothing of the gospel and isn't saying anything to you of substance. And you can look around the walls and be filled with the faith once delivered to the saints and previous generations who have retained their faithfulness by what they built. So we, um, we visited a church and they were... Uh, um, because we've been looking at uh, our own chancel and, and um, some improvements we might make, which, by the way, um, all our candelabra are kind of leaking and in rough shape, and so we're going to replace those. And you know how it goes in your, in your kitchen, right? You change the covering to the light switch, and then it's like, ah, got to do something about the paint. But the, but the paint we like doesn't go with the cabinets anymore. What are we going to do about that? And, by the time we change that, well, it's the countertops, and, well, you see how it goes. So, same thing with us. We're like, okay, we've got to replace the candelabra. Now what? Well, one piece after another, we're kind of looking at, okay, how can we, how can we make the chancel, um, which at one time looked very different than it does now, maybe a little less minimalistic, so that if people walked into our sanctuary, they'd be able to see more clearly what our theology is. And 
that we ourselves might actually pass on that theology in visual form and actual substance uh, to our children and to the generations that come after us. So we formed a little committee, as all Lutherans do, and, uh, <laughs> and our committee has been doing a lot of research and a lot of talking. One of the things we did was drove to various churches all over the place. And I won't name names because they were so kind to receive us and everything, but one church we went into, um, based on, the, on, on um, the, the representative of that congregation, just not really even recognizable hardly as a Christian church. Um, in terms of the people gathering there and what was being preached and taught and celebrated there, not really even recognizable as Christian. But all around them, even written, um, large, bold proclamations of the scriptures and the gospel, images of Christ and the angels and the saints, and even though they weren't using them anymore, ornate altar elevating everyone's attention to the gift of the Lord's Supper, where the sacrifice becomes a meal of forgiveness for us, a baptismal font, pulpit, all of it bespeaking what previous generations believed, which happened to be Christianity. So um, when, we look at the, when we look at the symbols here, uh, really important for us to, to pay attention to that, how they, how they work, and um, these things have a way of kind of grabbing a hold of the mind and sticking in your mind. And sometimes visually you can grasp things that you can't auditorially, if that's the right word. And um, these things are very helpful in that task. So um, I commend this little appendix to you. It's of wonderful benefit and use. And by the way, if you find some symbol around our church um, and you don't know what it is, feel free to ask me. I may know. And if not, I'll figure it out for you. Okay, so that little uh, field trip aside, um, back to page 16. And again, in this rich imagery, we can see how already we've sort of been taught just by the picture itself that there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now we're going to see these three articles together. First article, creation. And you'll recognize this from our church services where we make this confession. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul. Now, pardon me, I'm going to pause right there because this is not how Americans think. Americans think that I am my own. Well, what do you mean by that? My soul is my own. And what do we run into right here? A correction to that. That God has given me my body and soul. Your soul hasn't existed forever. Your soul was made, created, and it belongs to the one who created it, who made it. And so we are not our own. And that is of the utmost importance to realize lest we think ourselves having some kind of independence of our own, independent life within us, or some sort of, again, neutrality, wherein we could say, well, I, as a soul, judge and deem such and such. Uh, No, God created you and made you, and you're responsible to him as his creature. So, God has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, 
my reason and all my senses, this is another, you know, when you get the radical atheists in our culture, they, they've got their one-liner, I'm going to get God with this one. He's not going to be able to outwit me. Okay, well, what makes you think that when you're standing before God, you're going to have any wits at all? <laughs> what makes you think that he won't simply just withdraw his gift of reason? And there you are, babbling like a fool, or like the king in the Old Testament, milling about in the grass like a cow eating it. So this idea that, we've, that I've got my own mind, and I've got God, and here, listen to my five different ways that I've got God entrapped. Uh, yeah, think again. God gives us our reason and all our senses, and then this is such a beautiful line, and still takes care of them. Insofar as we have our senses, God has given them. Now, of course, sin, death, the devil, the curse, the fallen world, strips us sometimes of our, of our senses, um, and strips us sometimes of what we can physically perceive and, and enjoy. Um, I know after COVID, nothing tastes quite right. It's bizarre. Comes and goes. Sometimes, like I, the other day, I was biting into a, a tortilla, and it was like I had bitten into the very essence of tortilla-ness. <laughs> I could like taste the individual grains and the sun shining upon them and the <laughs> earth within. And, and then other times, it's like, okay, I can't taste nothing. And it's like, pour on the, the hottest salsa you can. Get out the ghost peppers. It's like, okay, that burns so good, I can taste finally. It is bizarre. So our senses are not in our control. And they're gifts given to us, and they're gifts that can be taken away. But they're also such playful things, because we can realize all of a sudden that, well, I can taste this way and then taste that way. And you kind of go, where do those, something can become utterly tasteless, or so tasting, like so, so filled with taste, it's almost, you know, mind-boggling. It almost shuts you down. It's just such a beautiful range of, of experience that God gives us. The same thing is true with our sight and our hearing and all of these things. Um, so God still takes care of these. They're active, present tense gifts that he gives us. And as Christians, we know this too, that even if he withdraws them, he's only withdrawing them for a time. So as we see the, the, uh, the various senses we experience in this life, the very enjoyments we have, you know, failing or getting twisted or distorted, we don't need to lose heart. We certainly don't need to go, oh, I'll never do that again. You know, your eyesight kind of fails. I've got contacts popped in right now. It's like, oh, I'll never, you know, I'll never see with my own eyes such and such and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, all of this is nonsense. Christ, who has given us these gifts, who has sustained these gifts in us, is going to return all these gifts to us in the resurrection of our bodies. It's just a temporary affliction. So such a beautiful thing that we see God as he is, as the giver of all all good things. And even when he takes away, even when he afflicts, he's still God the giver. And through these things, he's giving us very temporary experiences, but, but teaching us immensely through them and causing us to appreciate things that we otherwise would have taken for granted and causing us to look forward all the more to the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of our bodies. All right, so second paragraph. He also gives me Clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. Kind of another thing that's fun to meditate on. He gives me clothing? I, I thought Walmart did. <laughs> well, you know, trace it back to its origins. 
And, um, you know, he gives me, uh, he gives me the pork loin? No, Costco does. Doesn't pork just manifest at Costco? So we, we understand that all the way back to something as simple as giving rain so that there's crops that grow, so that there's stuff, all of that's in God's hands and still is. Despite our technologies and everything else, it's never ceased to be in God's hands. And if God withdrew it for a second, it'd truly be gone. And there's nothing we or all the scientists in the world could do to overturn it. So everything we have is, is truly a gift, even our clothing and shoes and our ability to purchase those things. You say, well, I earned it. Well, with what did you earn it? With the body and soul and energy and opportunity that God gave you. So there's no way out of this conundrum. In the end, we have to give thanks to God for all things. Even, you know, I did that by the sweat of my brow. Well, who gave you a brow with which you could sweat? <laughs> you know? uh, all of these things come from God. They're all gifts. So clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home. You know, and, and um, we're going to reflect on this a little bit in the, in the Lord's Prayer, so I don't want to belabor the point, but literally everything is gift. And then you see an interesting side of God because it's very easy to get offended when you see, well, everybody in the world has these things, even all evil people. And now you glimpse something very special about God, that he gives to the good and the evil alike. It's not by merit. It's not by earning. But you see with, you know, any, when, you're, when you're walking, you're walking to get your, uh, boy, I don't even know, with inflation, your $13.50 frappe. <laughs> uh, and you see all the other people there enjoying their frappes. That's a, that's a gift of God. It's a testament to His grace. Even when you see people there that you can just, you can even tell by the way they're dressed that they've got no regard for God. Yet there they are, and they're enjoying his gifts, and he wouldn't have it any other way. So we get a glimpse into the, in the graciousness of God, and if we allow this article, if we absorb this article, you, see, you start to see God's graciousness everywhere. It's really one of these things in theology, in our Christian walk, that God can give you eyes to see the world in an entirely different way. You can start to see everything as the gracious hand and gift of God. All right, so he gives us clothing, shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. Again, nothing, there's nothing I have that he has not given. There's nothing I have that I have not received. So why do you boast as if you had not received it, St. Paul asks. <laughs> he richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body in life. And again, this is a beautiful thing because we don't think this way. We think of, well, I've got my bank account and I've got my uh, IRA, my 401k. Although we go too much longer, none of us will have any of that. <laughs> um, but but we, uh, we get skewed in our thinking um, that... That, well, I've, like a squirrel, I've stored all these nuts into my little tree and I'm good. And we're missing the point that even that is sustained by God. And that through that, he still richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. And so, there's this, there, remember when Jesus teaches this way? He's like, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. 
there's this, there's this simplicity that we're missing in our complex modern life where we don't look at it as God's mercies being new to us each and every day. You wake up, there's eggs in the fridge to make a breakfast. That's God. Thanks be to God. There's electricity when you flip on your light. There's hot water. Blessed art thou amongst human beings. You crank that little nozzle over. Have you, you, know, have you done this? And hot water comes out? And you just get under it, it's there every single day. I mean, there's literally billions of people on the face of the earth right now, and over the course of history, billions more who know no such luxury. And we look at it as like, well, yeah, of course. I'd be grumpy if I didn't have it. (laughs) So it's God who daily provides us with all that we need. And it's such a beautiful and refreshing way to live where you just say, God, this is what you have for me today. Thank you. That was (laughs) well-timed. We have to pay extra for the special effects. All right, well, what else does God do? He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. And you say, you know, immediately the teenager in me comes out. Well, if that's the case, then how come bad things have happened to me and how come I die? Well, in and through those bad things happening, does God still not sustain? And even up until the point in which I die, does God still not welcome me home and save me from death? Yeah, he does. So I guess, in point in fact, he does defend me against all danger and guard and protect me from all evil. It's a bigger way that we're being called to think here. Even that the danger and evil that befall us, he works for what? The good of those who love him. And that's why we can even say with the apostles, with both Paul and James, we can count it all joy. Now that count it is reckon it all joy when we fall into trials and temptations, when we're afflicted and suffer, we can rejoice knowing that through these things God is going to produce all manner of positive things within us. Endurance and character and all of these sorts of things. All right? So he defends me against all danger, guards and protects me from all evil, transforms it all to work for my good. And then all this he does only out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. So a lot packed into that. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And when you confess those lines in church, you're confessing the substance that's underneath here. All right, when you, um, when you confess those words, uh, this kind of gets us to a point um, that I think we all as Christians have to be reminded of sometimes. When you confess the creed, you're actually doing something spiritual that's very important because you are asserting publicly as a member of the body of Christ, you're asserting the truth over and against all the lies to the contrary. And even if there's no one there in the sanctuary who's opposed to what it is you're confessing, there are principalities and powers of darkness everywhere that are and that try to lie and deceive and manipulate so that you don't see these things about God. So it's a powerful thing when you're confessing. In fact, all of the liturgy is a powerful thing. That's why the the pastor, I usually when I'm doing the liturgy, stop short of saying the Amen. That's yours 
take it or leave it. Um, remember what amen means? Yes, yes, it shall be so. Well, do you believe that or not? I'm not going to be up there believing it for you. Um, nor, nor is the liturgy um, some kind of production where I'm up there just reading everyone's lines. That would be terrible. Uh, no, it's a prayer or it's a creed. And the part in bold is your part to say with all your heart, mind, and soul. Or not. Um, But it's something for us to consider as Christians that we're actually doing something when we confess. We're announcing to the principalities and powers of darkness. We're announcing to the world. We're announcing to one another that we are all united in this faith. That we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And all that that entails. All right. Any thoughts or comments, questions on the first article? Yes, I see a hand in the back. One of the things that strikes me, okay, one of the things that strikes me uh, about Luther's explanation is it's a little bit um, earth forward, if you will. It's it talks a lot about God's creation of us mm-hmm. and of all the things that we have, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't, you know, I mean, which is fine. I mean, I understand he, what he, he was like. You said he was trying to portray God's graciousness to us in that. But can you say a little bit about, you know, what we have, for example, in the Nicene Creed? God created all things, visible and invisible, hmm. right? It, it, the, the, what seems to be missing to me in, in Luther's explanation there is somehow the transcendence of God, the fact that when he created things, the world was empty, and it didn't even have any rules about how it should work. Right, it was. It didn't even have any form. It didn't have any form, and it was empty. Mm-hmm. Um, and God made it all. Right. So a little more cosmic in scope. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think it's good to just remember what it is that Luther's trying to do, particularly in the small catechism, and that's give it so that your average person could explain it to his average family, and even that, albeit in the uh, in the medieval period, you know, in the 16th century. So. I think that simplicity and earthiness is kind of fitting in that regard and what he was after. Of course, Luther in no way denies the points that you bring up and that indeed God creates the heavens. That's all created. And the earth. He creates the heavenly host, the angels, and he creates man to rule and uh, here on earth and then all the animals underneath. Um, yeah, all that to be sure. And then um, all, the, all the mysteries unveiled by our, um, by our reason and scientific approach and whatever else are all created by God and are all there for us to enjoy. And um, what we see in God is just also just amazing profligacy, we would say almost wastefulness. Um, in fact, there's kind of that meme that floats around out there. Um, you mean to tell me that God created 3.6 billion light years of galaxies, you know, however many billions of galaxies, however many even more, um, you know, billions of stars, and just all of this excess, all of this superfluousness, um, just so that he could have a personal relationship with you? Yes. that's exactly right that's what christ says christ says look up at the heavens it's all made for man for signs and wonders that is that man would know 
his maker, when we see that, when we see the visible heavens, we're not talking about the invisible heavens, but even when we see the visible heavens and marvel, we have to marvel with the psalmist and say, who is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of him? What is man? We are nothing. Our lives are as vapor, and yet you gave your son to become as we are and gave your son to die for us, poor little dirt creatures and sinners, that all our sins would fall upon the flesh of the Almighty and be taken away, and that we would be cleansed by nothing less than the very blood of God himself, and that we would be raised from the dust to live forever as spiritual men in the presence of Almighty God, conformed into the image of his Son and in his glory for all eternity. It's almost too much to take in, but then you just realize how good God is, and that he's just super abundant. It's just with God, it's just more, 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 and you go, why? And he's like, why not? Why so stingy? Why so small-minded? Just more, more. I mean, this is kind of, this even hits us sometimes with, it's like, well, why does he forgive me in baptism and in absolution and in the Lord's Supper and in the sermon? And, well, why not? Why not? You know, it's, it's kind of analogous to a husband and a wife. And the husband is so in love with his wife, he wants to write her like little notes at the start of the day little notes at the end of the day and he hugs her and he kisses her and he speaks softly to her and he does all he does all these things and does she ever stop and go "Ah, i already knew you loved me when you said it first thing this morning i don't know why i need all the other stuff i don't know why i need to constantly hear that you love me i mean so are we when we sit here and go i don't know why you constantly need to forgive me uh, or love me or shower me with gifts and glories jesus you know but he does anyway. Uh, so how silly are we to think that way? No wife would think that way of her husband and the bride of Christ. The church certainly doesn't think that way about Jesus. Whatever he gives, we just say, thank you, Lord. You know, thank you, Lord. And how do you say, I mean, if you're almighty and holy God, how do you say, I love you to sinners? Mm, I love your sinfulness. I delight in your wickedness. No! So what, do you, what does it sound like when you say, I love you to sinners? I forgive you. That's what it sounds like. I forgive you and love you. I made you and redeemed you. I've sanctified and I'm conforming you. Take heart. Keep your hearts and minds set on me. And in due time, you'll see all these things that I've promised made manifest. So that's, um, that's something to keep in mind too. All right. Did I see another hand pop up? As I age, I am... And this is so redundant because of all the, age, the, the elements of ages among all of you here. So I'm speaking to the choir. But as I age, I am more and more aware of the dullness of humanity and how we've got to alert ourselves to the responsibility of this marvelous presentation of Martin Luther. Oh. I'm just, I am ever, I'm increasingly appreciative of the, elements of my education, my, the family I came from, and uh, goodness, we need to awaken the children to a greater degree, and, and, but you know what? They have to live their life, and we have to pray for the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to arouse in them yeah. The, yeah. the marvel of God's Word. Right, thank you. And it is the children that are so open to these ideas. You know, This manifests itself civically for us I think at no time greater than Thanksgiving. Because you see people like, oh, be thankful. To whom? 
To whom are you thankful? Oh, just generally be thankful. Pardon me, that's idiotic. I mean, you can't be thankful, like thankful to fate, thankful to the planets that aligned. Uh, it's just, it, you know, it's completely idiotic. And, and um, adults just convince themselves that it's not. But children know it. What are you thankful for? Oh, I'm thankful for my toy. Where did that come from? Mom and Dad. Where did Mom and Dad get it from? You know, you just trace it back, and eventually any little kid's going to be like, God? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But an adult's going to sit there and be like, just thankful. Leave me alone. <laughs> thankful to no one. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I, think you've, uh, I think you've put your finger right on the pulse of, you know, what's, what's so um, amazing about fallen human beings, how um, insensible and desensitized we are to simple reality. Just, just to what's right in front of our eyes, that everything comes from God. That if he withheld from, for one second, it would all be chaos. Okay, so yeah, we're encouraged to go boldly with this, um, with this doctrine, this good news, the fatherly provision of God, and of course our accountability to him. You know? And I think that that's beautifully articulated, by the way, in those Ten Commandments, because again, as we saw in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God, um, who brought you out of Egypt, who rescued you from the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me, etc., etc. What we're going to see in all of those commandments then is a gift that God gives and that he's protecting. So first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What's the gift he's, he's given? Himself and his salvation and his baptism. Don't walk away from me. Don't have other gods. They're going to let you down and they're not going to be able to save you. Did any of them come and save you before? No, I did. And so he gives himself. Then what's he given the second commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He gives his name, his identity, access to him, that we may call upon him in prayer. Pray, praise, and give thanks. So that's his name that he's gifted to us and that he's then protecting with a commandment. What about the Sabbath day? Same thing, that we not despise preaching in his word. He's given us his word. So don't despise it. That's the commandment. I've given you this thing. Cherish it. Consume it. Hear it. Meditate on it. Teach it. Dwell in it richly. Don't despise it. Don't choose lesser goods compared to this greatest good. All right, well, what's the commandment he gives, or what's the gift he gives, rather, in the fourth commandment? Well, parents as his officers, as his ambassadors, and then all authority from that, and then all things that flow from authority. Um, So all the blessings of of good governance in the church, and good governance in the state, and good governance in the home, God gives all of that, and he wants it protected. Honor your father and mother. And then what, what else is, I mean, what is second even to this? Nobody can have life if you don't have this structure. So second even to this structure is life. And then God gives the gift of life. Who creates life in the womb? Not a, not a man and a woman. <laughs> Many of you in this room know you can do that a lot and no child. There's, that's in God's hands. And so God is the one who gives life and thus we have the principle that no one can take it. And only certain offices and certain circumstances can take life. But li- and those have to be according to God's command. God is the giver of life, so you shall not murder. And then God, how does God propagate and continue that life? You shall not commit adultery. What's the gift he's giving? Husband and wife. 
united in one flesh, bearing forth fruit and children. It's the sustenance of the human race. So don't commit adultery because you're going to ruin that. You're going to destroy that. You're going to break that down. And then, of course, what we're seeing right now, of course, since the 1960s, about 60 years too late, is uh, when, you, when you go ahead and just you know, throw that commandment away, what it eventually does is not just ruins your life and the lives of the people around you. When it hits in mass, it actually ruins an entire culture. And it ruins and distorts an entire people. And it's the downfall of a, a nation. It used to be even why pagans would uphold some way, shape, or form. You shall not commit adultery because if it ultimately weakens the state. All right, so then what else? God likes stuff. He's got an entire cosmos filled with stuff. And he likes the fact that you would have stewardship over some stuff, and your neighbor wouldn't. Your neighbor would, ha- would have their own stuff to have stewardship over. And so he says, you shall not steal. Yeah, this is the gift of stuff. It's why right off the bat, we know that communism is wrong, inherently wrong, built on an absolutely false and anti-Christian premise, as if we needed the fruit of that when they murdered all the Christians. Um, But we already know it's anti-Christian because it says, all your stuff is not your stuff. It's my stuff. Oh, I mean, it's our stuff. And And then it seeks to distribute in ways that is absolutely contrary to the way God has already distributed and given all right, so, so God gives the gift of stuff and then says, don't steal it. And then what else does God give? He gives reputation. Anybody ever had their reputation trashed? It's amazing how many doors are closed before you even walk up to them when your reputation's trashed. And so God gives us our, our sense of dignity and our sense of reputation, our sense of being honorable. And how, how does he sustain that? Well, where we inevitably mess up, we confess, and we're forgiven, and we're restored, and we're welcomed back to the fellowship. So this is uh, to the community. So this is the gift of reputation and a good name. He says, don't, don't tell lies about one another, slander one another, gossip. It destroys reputation, closes off doors. So again, this is all of these commandments are predicated upon what God gives. And then 9 and 10, is, it ends not with a whimper, but with a bang. It's like, hey, don't covet, because when you let that go, you're just constantly dissatisfied with everything. Or you're just moving from one dissatisfaction to another. You can't figure out why, even though you've got a whole heck of a lot more money and stuff than you used to, you're as unhappy as ever. And that's, that's the idea of coveting. So God, God there is actually giving a holistic kind of gift, saying, your satisfaction is going to be in me. And if you seek it other places, you're going to constantly be dissatisfied. And you're going to constantly be desiring this and scheming to get that and trying to entice or force away the other so that you can have more, so that as soon as you have it, what? You can immediately realize, I want another one or a different one. That's how it all goes for us. Okay. So, but what is God giving there? He's giving himself once more as a kind of an inclusio, wrapping up, be satisfied with what I give. And the point of my little digression here is to show that all of this wraps up into the first article. God as giver. And then we understand his commandments rightly when we see God protecting those gifts that he has given us. Make sense? All right, so uh, let's pause there. Let's see if there's a a question or two um, before we uh, 
Any, any thoughts? We're okay? Then let's just wrap it up right here. Next week, we're going to look at um, the second article and touch on that. Um, this is, of course, the person and work of Jesus. The Lord be with you.